Now, happiness is something we lack. Now, many of you said you're happy in here, and I think that's amazing if you're happy. I observe, just like you do, and I see the world around me. I see our world, I see our country, I see our families, I see our church, I see our friendships, and I think we lack, in many cases, happiness. I am going to, today and over the next eight weeks, tell you without any shadow of a doubt how it is you can be happy. And I am absolutely 100% convinced and committed to the fact that I know how to be happy. And it's not because I'm smart. You guys have figured that out a long time ago. Not because I had this amazing insight that nobody else has. It's because I take the Bible seriously and my Bible tells me this is how you can be happy. This is how I can be happy. And I take that literally. I take that and stake my very life on it. I take it and I share it with you because I want nothing more than for you to be happy. But we live in a divided world. We live in a world that stresses us, that, that well, perplexes us, the uncertainties, the lack of control. And I'm so thankful that Scripture reminds us that if we keep it simple, even though it may be difficult, well, it's the only real reasonable way to live. Now let's look at this idea of happiness. We're going to spend eight weeks on this theme. The secret to happiness today, I'm going to show you the first part in an eight-part series is, the secret to happiness is that happy people are loving people. Now Christians think that we're the most loving people in the world, but may I tell you, I'm going to share a secret with you, we're the worst at it. And the problem is we don't realize it. We're going to talk about that today. Happy people are loving people. We all daydream about trouble-free life made possible by something. A job, a house, a car, a spouse, a child, family, a pile of money. But what if your happiness has nothing to do with a what at all? What if it has to do with a who? What if I were to ask you the question, what makes you happy? What would you say? Well, many of you would think of something right off the bat, Right? What makes you happy? Is it a hobby? Is it a possession, an acquisition, a promotion, a relationship? What would it be that makes you happy? We're geared toward, we are wired toward what's that we put in our life. I hate to run. Absolutely hate it. Hate running. The only time you're going to catch me running is if somebody's chasing me. And then I hope that they're not in better shape than me because it's not going to be hard to catch me. And let me just, just because I'm interested, ask you, how many of you in here consider yourself to be runners? Raise a hand if you're a runner. We have several in here. We had exactly two in the first service. And the rest of them are like me. Um, I don't like it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. And this is one of these lean-in moments, okay? This is something that I want you to put in your pocket because you're going to need this later. It's going to come up every week for the next eight weeks, something I want you to remember. Sometimes it's good for us to do things that are hard for us, okay? Sometimes it's very good for us to do things that are hard for us. Our sound person, my friend Brian Vanderpool, and I were talking about quitting coffee every once in a while because it's hard, but because it's so much fun to start drinking it again, right? That's not at all what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about doing something just because we're not very good at it. It humbles us, it grounds us, reminds us that we're just like everybody else. So there was a time in my life that I decided I was gonna be a runner. And we had a friend, Pastor Dan and I, 
good friend who liked to run. He was in the 2%. And when he found out that I was trying to run, by the way, if you ever decide you're going to try to run, don't tell anybody, anybody. Keep your shameful secret to yourself. I prefer to run in shame by myself where nobody can see me. Um, but I made the mistake of mentioning that I'm, I'm trying to run. Let's go running together. Let's go running together. Uh-uh, not going running with you. Not going to do it. I'm bad at it. Don't want to do it. Don't care. Not going to run with you. Let's go running together. Come on, it's Saturday. Let's go running. Don't want to run with you. Not going to run with you. Finally, I said, okay, I'll go run with you. I said, I'm really bad at it. Not only am I not genetically gifted, I'm not motivated. It's something that I don't like to do. I'm doing it because I'm bad at it. And he said, no, no big deal. We'll just go run. You know, I'll see if I can help you, give you some pointers, whatever. So we took off on a Saturday and um, I kept up for a while and then I didn't. And he looked back and I was on the trail and I was doubled over, dry heaving, true story in pain, regret, a little bit of shame. And he looks back at me and he said, ha, I beat you like that. And I said, of course you beat me. I told you I was terrible at this. And he said, I'm a better runner than you are. And he's kind of running circles around me and I feel good. And if I could have caught him, I would have killed him because I promise you I would have been a better fighter at that moment than he was. You stink at running. I'm the best at running. I'm better. I'm going to tell everybody. And I thought, my goodness, not only am I not sure you're a great friend, but if that makes you happy, how messed up could we possibly be? Sometimes our happiness comes because we compare ourselves to other people. And we want to win. We want to look better. I have more money. I've got a better job. Well, my kids, for the moment, right, are better behaved, making better choices. I'm in better shape drive a nicer car, live in a better house, have a bigger boat. I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy because you're not. But what if happiness isn't about a what? Because if happiness is defined by a what, friends, there's always a what's next or what else. What if happiness is defined by a who? What if the secret to happiness is defined by who and not what. Now, this is going to be a diverging trail. It's going to be a choice that's going to cause you, for some of us, to live a different way. Your worldview could shift away from self and really begin to grasp the point of how it is we can truly be happy. But friends, all I can do is point and hope you look. That's it. So today I'm going to point at the truth and I'm going to pray and trust that you look and that you take that step and that together we become truly happy. We're still in Philippians, except instead of Philippians 4, we're going all the way back to Philippians 1. And Philippians is a book, as I've mentioned to you, that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church he loved, a church he started, a church he sacrificed for. He was wanting them to win. He was wanting them to be happy. He wasn't running faster than them, looking back, saying, ha, I beat you. You guys are terrible at this. He had them by the hand, running with them, saying, if you don't win, none of us win. We win together. The only way to be happy is because we we together are serving God above and walking with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he encouraged and he strengthened and he wrote from his heart. And as he's writing this heart, he begins this great book with a prayer. 
And this prayer has eight parts in it. And you and I are going to spend the next eight weeks talking about these eight parts. So I want to read this to you and um, suggest to you that today we're going to be cracking the surface of a truth that can change your life. The Apostle Paul says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what's best and you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The Apostle Paul starts off his prayer with the instruction. He wants us to be loving. Loving people are happy people. One of the themes of the book of Philippians is to have supernatural joy and happiness. In his pastoral prayer, his heart is going out to people saying, if you want to be happy, there's some things you have to realize. Now, I consulted some different sources this last couple of weeks as I'm studying for this. I wanted to see what the world has to say about happiness. I studied psychotherapists. I studied pop psychologists. I studied a little of Dr. Phil. I studied everybody. How it is can we, how we can be happy, what it is we need to do to, to be happy. There's something interesting that I turned up, and it turns out that it's biblical. I want to share it with you. And it was just this little four-part little, I don't know, just this little study on happiness. The reason I'm sharing it is because it's backed up by Scripture, vetted and proven, even though I'm not 100% sure the person who shared this knew that. He says, we are responsible for our own happiness. Number one, nobody owes you anything in life. That's an important and profound truth, isn't it? Nobody owes us anything in life, but many times we feel like that we're owed things, and when we don't get what it is we think we're owed, then it causes us to be unhappy. Entitlement. Number two, he says, accept people for who they are and stop trying to make them who we think they should be or who we want them to be. People are messed up. And one of the greatest myths of church is that you sitting in your chair right now, me standing here on this spot on this stage, I know I'm messed up. And you know you're messed up, but you don't think anybody else in here is messed up, and you desperately don't want them to know. And I think one of the greatest things that you and I can do is to realize that we have to accept each other for who we are. And just like Jesus, encourage and nudge each other not to stay that way. Number three, not everybody thinks like us. So stop expecting them to. Use your words. Communicate. Instead of expecting the world to come to me on my terms and get mad because they don't understand my values, my principles. Not everyone thinks like me. Friends, there's probably not a person in this world who thinks differently than me than my wife. And she would say the same thing about me. The longer we live together, the more I love her, but the more of a mystery she is. And I look back over 30 years and think, I haven't even come close to cracking the code, which is a great challenge. But we expect everyone to communicate and relate to us on our terms. And in fact, it's a senseless mission. And number four, he said, love does not cause you pain. 
Now, I think that was the most interesting to me because oftentimes we feel that love causes pain and we avoid it at all cost. Sometimes pain or grief is a price we pay for loving, but loving is the reason that we were created. It's the reason we're here. We're going to break that down. But the Apostle Paul says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. There are three things here that I want you to see right off the bat. First of all, it's supernatural because he says, the Apostle Paul, this preacher, it's my prayer for you because God's going to put it inside your heart and he's going to allow it to grow. Now you may say, what is it? Well, love is it. And you say, well, love, what does that mean? Does it mean I just love everybody and I have all kinds of emotional feelings and we all just get along to go along and hold hands and sing kumbaya? No, love. Agape love is the love of choice, the love of commitment, the love of decision. It's the love of saying, this is who I am and this is how I will act or behave. It's a love that does not require the object of the love to deserve the love. But we choose to love because it's how we were created to be. And that's the second thing I want you to see in this is that not only is it supernatural because you would say to me and I would say to you, I can't love like that. I love myself well. Sometimes I don't love you quite as well. Well, I love you as long as it's easy for me to love myself while I'm loving you. But at the moment that you do things that makes me not love myself well, well, I don't love you anymore because after all I have to win. And and the apostle Paul says, there's a different way. There's a supernatural seed the Holy Spirit plants in your heart and he will water it and it will grow. And it's this love, not just a supernatural love, but an intentional, decisive kind of love. And then third, the word abound. It means that it grows, present in abundance, to have a bunch. And it's the bunch of love that flows out of a person, relationships, a church congregation that changes the world. It flows more and more, even better than good, growing all the time. So the Apostle Paul says, this is what I want. Matter of fact, this is my prayer. I want you to be happy, so I want you to be loving. Now, you may be nodding your head because it seems like you're pretty loving. And you may think you're really good at it because sometimes it seems like we're really good at it. And that situation, that perception's not new. It happened over and over again in scripture. And there were a group of people or was a group of people who decided that they were gonna try to trap or trick Jesus by asking him a question. And this question or the answer that Jesus gave is one that's so revolutionary and so mind-blowing, but yet so simple, we have to talk about it. Now, the problem is that there was a culture during Jesus' day of religious control, of intentional separatism, of judgmentalism, where there were people who said they knew God and people around them would say, well, they're godly because they say they know God, they wear the God clothes, they carry around the God box, they do the God kind of stuff. But in reality, there was a disconnect because they would say, I'm godly, but yet their actions didn't back it up. They would say that they're loving. They were the rulers of the church, but people would say, well, they must be loving because they say they are. But in reality, they didn't want to be around them because they weren't loving at all. 
They said they were servants of the people and the people would say, well, they're servants because they say they're servants, but, but the truth of it is they didn't serve anyone but themselves. And they built a whole system around religious control, around who'd been around the longest and whose families were whose and all this kind of weird web that nobody could, could, could untangle. And they tried to trap Jesus. Now, I want to give you some background. Now, this is the time I'm going to take a step down so I can see you well because I'm getting ready to explain some stuff to you that um, is going to be interesting, I hope, but I just I want to make sure you're tracking with me. This is context, right? Remember, we've talked about context, and context is important. Now, you may just see me on Sunday morning, and when I first see you in the parking lot, you may look at me and say, Pastor Rick is grumpy because I didn't greet you the way that you wanted to be greeted or that I normally would greet you, but you didn't know that I just spilled coffee in my lap and you know that I ran a red light and got pulled over by a cop or whatever it was. None of that happened today. That could have been a different day. But these are the things that go on behind the scenes, the context. And all of a sudden, it puts everything into an appropriate light. And this question that Jesus has asked that gets to this topic of love, well, there's some context that's important, so bear with me. These Pharisees, these religious controllers, this group of people who tried to prove how spiritual they were by keeping people like you and me out, well, they divided the law of Moses, well, in a way that's going to make you laugh, but you have to understand how legalistic these people were. Moses' law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, written by Moses, who was considered to be the chief Christian or a Jew of all the Jews by the religious leaders and still one of the fathers of our faith, well, he wrote some really important stuff. In the Old Testament law, these Pharisees, the religious controllers, the preachers of the day, they picked out 613 laws. They numbered them. I didn't. Don't get mixed up or law. Don't start counting them now, please. We're talking and it'll just take you off into the deep weeds. They decided there's 613 of them. You might be like, who in the world would study that and try to figure out how many laws there are? People who wanted to say they were keeping the law and that you weren't keeping the law. Now, they didn't just stop there. These guys were pieces of work. They had to decide which laws were positive and which laws were negative. So of the 613, they had 248, they decided were positive laws. These were the fun things, the ones you wanna talk about on Sunday, right? The ones that everybody feels good about. But of course, you couldn't just stop with 248 positive because after all, God's word had to be about stop it, stop it, stop it, and you're terrible and you know, do something different. And they had a very negative controlling approach. So they had 365 negative laws. They called them that, positive, negative. Now, why do you think they had 365? The 248 was supposedly for all the parts of the body we have some medical professionals in here. I have no idea if I have 248 individual parts in my body. I mean, I count fingers and toes and whatnot. I, I, I don't know. They figured that out. So 248, that was their number. Why do you think they had 365? Because there were 365 days of the year. So they could tell you to cut something out on a Tuesday and make you feel really bad about yourself because you were not cutting that thing out. And then if you didn't feel bad enough about yourself, Wednesday rolled around and they'd slap you with another one. So you had 365 days of negative laws that they could smack you with to control you with saying that they knew God, saying that they were loving, saying that they were serving. But in reality, everybody looked at them and thought this must be the church, but you just knew something was missing. Well, they even went one step further at the risk of belaboring the point. 
they had to decide which one of these positive and negative laws were heavy, their words, and which ones were light. In other words, which ones were the important ones to keep and which ones, eh, if you didn't keep them, it wasn't the end of the world. So they had 613 laws divided into two categories, 248 positive, 365 negative, heavy, and light. And they had this discussion all the time. So when the wise ones got together to talk, they would ask questions like, what do you think is the heaviest of the 365 and the 248? Now, we Christians have done this for years. And what's funny is every denomination or every church will pick their own that they think are the heaviest. And generally, it's just social legalism and sometimes even slips into control. You pick the ones you want that are the easiest to enforce because everybody has secrets, but we don't want anybody else to know. So we create a culture that's so far from the heart of God that it's scary, but it happens in churches all over our country. So they asked Jesus this question. It's not out of context. It's not a random question. A lawyer, a keeper of the law, one of the religious elite, at least attached to the religious elite to help define and divide and distribute all these things, came up to Jesus and he said, hey, got a question for you, Jesus. You say you know God. Now we know Jesus is God, but he's like, hey, you say you know God. Let's see if you can speak for God. Which one of the laws in the Old Testament do you think is the most important? Now do you understand why he asked the question? They understand it wasn't out of nowhere. It was in context. It was something that they thought defined how spiritual somebody was, also how intelligent they are. And Jesus answers the question. Here he goes, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. Now Mark, in the gospel of Mark, for those of you who aren't super familiar with the Bible, there are four gospels. Matthew is just one of them. Mark is also one of the gospels which talk about Jesus' life. And they add a word here, Mark does, which makes it more complete. There's no contradictions. He says, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus answered with authority. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, and your strength. And by the way, he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, the apostle Paul, all he did in his writing, remember, we've talked about this. All the Apostle Paul did, who came after Jesus, right, writing the things that Jesus taught, he said, look at me, looking at Jesus, encouraging you how to live, grabbing you by the hand so that we can all win together, not trying to beat you, let's be truly happy. And so Jesus, this original teaching, goes back to two different sections of scripture that every single Jew knew. He lays it out there and he says, if you wanna to be truly happy, to be truly loving, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Friends, you and I are not very loving. I see and experience what goes on in our world. Emotions are high. Tempers quick. And many of us are ruining our witness 
on a daily basis because we're missing these two great teachings and commands of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I want to talk to you for just a second about us loving our neighbor. Jesus also told a story because this idea of neighbor was sort of foreign to these teachers of the religious law, to the Jews especially. So they would ask Jesus questions like, well, it's, I should love the people who are like me, right? I should love the people who vote like me, right? I should love the people who are vaccinated like me or not vaccinated like me, right? I should love the people who wear masks like I do or the people who don't wear masks like I do, right? I should love the people who think the same way that I do, who dress the same, whose kids go to the same schools. Who, I mean, we break ourselves down into these subcategories to the point where we're missing the point so much that not only are we unhappy, but, well, we've strayed far from the heart of Jesus. So Jesus told a story. Again, for those who aren't super familiar with the Bible, I'm going to tell you a story that's in the Bible about what's well, called the Good Samaritan. And Jesus told a story about a man who helped another man who was so different politically that the two of them couldn't even be in the same boating precinct. Who was so different religiously that they couldn't even sit in the same room and find commonality. Every Jew knew somebody who'd been beat up by a Samaritan, wounded, sometimes killed, and vice versa. Generations in history of hatred between two people. And Jesus goes right at the heart. Kind of like when you have that sore that's not really growing or healing as fast and someone just pokes it. Even if it's an accident, you're like, man, that hurt. That's kind of what Jesus is doing right now. So he tells the story. He said, hey, there was a man, a Jew, walking down a road, and everybody knew the road, dangerous road, windy road, down into a valley, full of thugs and robbers and crooks and, you know, people like that. He got beat up within an inch of his life, left for dead. Pastor comes walking by. A priest sees the man, a Jew, sees this Jew one of his own people, slips all the way to the side, close as he can to the wall, walks on past, like he never saw this man hurting in the first place. Now, you can view the world in two ways. The people in your life are in your way or they're on your way. And I don't believe the people in your life and my life are put there by accident. But just as a matter of fact, Jesus says he just walks on, just walks on by, all right? Now, the people who are listening are like, well, he's a preacher. He can't get his hands dirty. There were laws and rules about people who were dead. And I mean, they have all this kind of, it's just a parable. Jesus is making a point. Preachers ought to know better. Sometimes we don't. Well, then another interpreter of the law comes, sees this man laying in the road, slips all the way over to the side, walks on by. Like nothing ever happened. Well, he's in my way. He's not on my way. Surely somebody else will help him. I'm not going to stop and love him. I mean, why would I do that? I mean, I got my own thing to worry about. So then Jesus says, a Samaritan comes. Now, if you were listening to the story, especially the Jews would have been like, boo, 
Samaritans, boo, they look different than us. They vote different than us. They dress different than us. They're a different religion than us. They're, I mean, all the different stuff. And this is sometimes where you and I, we lose our witness and act in shameful ways. Because sometimes you and I just look at the differences and man, the differences can be extreme and important. But we only have a certain amount of influence through our mouth and our life. And when we look at Jesus' life, he never used his influence to dismiss and to divide and to destroy. He used his influence to invite, to encourage and inspire that there can be a different way. That all are welcome at the foot of the cross. And that's the only place where level ground can truly be found. So the crowd would have been booing. Oh, Samaritan's bad. And the Samaritan comes by and sees a Jew. Most of them would have gone and kicked him off the edge, right? And then they'd have gone back to their friends and they'd all bought him around at the tavern. But he stopped. He engaged. He invested. He went the extra mile. And Jesus said, this man was a neighbor and loved his neighbor. And I think we need to do a better job of loving our neighbors. I sometimes, sometimes it actually pains me to read social media, to listen, to see how you and I are responding in this world where we only have a measured amount of influence and you and I are letting our anger and our frustration get in the way and we're dismissing and dividing and discouraging and destroying. And I want so badly for Jesus to be seen right now in our lives, in our relationships, in our church, and I want so badly for the world to see that a personal relationship with Jesus through confession of sin, believing who Jesus is and pledging to follow him as our Savior and our Lord is the only thing that matters. That our passion is placed in the right spot. I think that just like Jesus said, that if we're going to love him, we have to take care of his people. Even as he said this to one of his best friends, Peter, Peter says, yeah, I'll take care of my people. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. You got to love my people. Who are they? The people who are hard for us to love. Now, I want to give you a challenge personally because it doesn't work unless it works right here within you. I always start right here, concentric circles, right? I want to rock in the pond and it works itself out in concentric circles, going all the way back to the apostle Paul saying, my prayer for you is that this supernatural love of commitment of choice, even though you don't feel like it, even though there are reasons, even though there's emotion, even though there's angst and anger and things seem out of control, I pray that this supernatural love is going to grow more and more and more, but it has to start right here. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
How are your closest relationships? I could take this a thousand different ways. This is the way I believe that God wants me to take it. So I'm going to leave you with this. This is something that I've been observing over the last few weeks with people who are close to me and people maybe it's going to hit close to home. But I think there are two things that we have to come to grips with. The first is that the reason that I'm here on this earth, that my purpose is other people. That's it. That my purpose in this life is to help nudge the people who I come in contact with toward a saving relationship with Jesus. And I have to realize that every contact I have either nudges somebody toward or nudges somebody away. And friends, you do too. The second thing I have to realize is that if I want to love people well, I can't have bitterness and hold grudges in my life. Because it's impossible to be right with God when I'm allowing bitterness and unforgiveness to continue in my life with somebody else who God's created. And I've personally watched over the years people allowing personal offenses that seem like no big deal at the very beginning to go unchecked and unnoticed and they grow and compound and rot our souls from the inside out to where we become just like the Pharisees. And I want to challenge you and encourage you that if there's something in your life where somebody has wronged you, an offense that's been done to you, that you forgive because Jesus forgave. And I don't have the time to go through all of the scripture references that connect love and forgiveness together. But take me at my word as your friend and pastor. The New Testament is absolutely jam-packed. And if you want to be truly happy and truly loving, we have to be truly forgiving. Now, when I ask you to forgive, it doesn't mean that what somebody did is okay. It doesn't mean it was legal. It doesn't mean it was moral. It doesn't mean it was just. But what it means is, is we have to take the offense and we have to say, God, I love you more than I love myself. And even though the people around me aren't very lovable, I'm giving this offense to you, Lord, and I want the best for them as you rebuild their life the way you want to rebuild it. And you just unburden yourself. Now, it's easy when there's just people you used to know. I have these two categories in my life. may not be helpful for you at all, but it's helpful for me. There are people who've done things to you who you don't have to really be in close relationship or proximity to. may not be wise, may not be safe, right? And they're just people you used to know. There are people like that. You see someone. Hey, they're just someone I used to know. A relationship. What's happened? The water under the bridge, the offenses. I don't have to keep score. I don't have to love myself better. I don't have to make sure I win. I don't have to turn around and say, you're bad, I'm good. I'm holding on to this because I know it kills me when I do. So I give it to the Lord and I say, God, I forgive even though it's hard for me to forgive, even though they don't deserve it, even though there are consequences, I forgive because I have to. And they just become a person you used to know. Now, there's still people in your life who you probably have to still know who you still have to forgive. 
And sometimes they don't ask for forgiveness, but that has nothing to do with it. As we unburden ourselves to be at peace with ourselves, with others, and with the Lord, we have to lay the bitterness and the grudges down. The unforgiveness has to go. And you probably have seen the same thing that I have, maybe in your own life, maybe in the lives of those who are close to you. Soul rot is one of the most contagious and alienating things that a person can have. And a little water was under the bridge, a little rubber down the road, and you look back and wonder what happened. So my challenge to you is, let's you and I pray for each other, that our love for each other and for our world, beginning with the people closest to us and working its way out, will abound more and more so that the world can see Jesus and that Jesus operates in a different way. And friends, there's nothing that's going to make you happier. Now, we have seven more weeks of this series and there are seven more principles that the Apostle Paul brings out. And every week we're going to use them as a foundation, as a springboard to dive in a little deeper. It'll get a little more personal, but that's what Scripture does. And remember, friends, all I can do is point and pray that you look. But I know that if you look, your life can be changed. And we'll do it together. Father, thank you so much for my friends.